Hello and welcome to the 32nd episode of the Broly Talks Hockey Podcast. In today's episode, Matthew and I are joined by co-writer of Everyday Hockey Heroes Volume 2, Jim Lang. Proud to have today on the podcast, Jim Lang. How are you doing today, Jim? Matthew, I'm good. Brody, boys, how's everyone doing? We're doing great. We're doing great. Thank you for having me on. Pleasure to have you on. on. All right, let's get right into it. So uh, your story is a little bit of a, is a little bit of an, an, uh, sorry, it's a bit of an unorthodox one. You were born, born in Verdun, France. How did, like, tell us what made, like, what got you into sports casting in in, uh, North America? Well, my dad was in the Canadian Air Force. And in the 1960s, the Canadian military was quadruple what the size of it is now. And that was during the height of the Cold War. And at the time, Canada, England, United States, Western European countries, there was a real threat that the Warsaw Pact, which is Russia, East Germany, and all those countries on the other side of the Iron Curtain, were going to attack the West and take over West Germany, Paris, go all the way to the English Channel. So at the time, we had a big military bases. My dad was in the Air Force. So I was born in a, a military base in France at the time. So I'm considered a Canadian citizen. And then we lived in the Black Forest in Germany. And, um, at the, you know, at the time, my dad, they would have a regular, basically, World War III exercises. And they would practice how fast they could get all the planes fueled up in the air, heading towards East Germany in case there was war. And that was part of the life in Europe in the 1960s for the Canadian military along with the British and American military. I know it's hard to imagine now, but um, there were literally bases there from different countries with hundreds of jets ready to go to war within minutes as soon as they got the call and troops and tanks and whatnot. So that's where I was born. And then we moved to uh, CFP Trenton, uh, Trenton, Ontario, near Belleville. Uh, in uh, would have been I guess 1968 we moved there and then from there with my dad in the military we spent time in Trenton we were in California we were in Nova Scotia then back to Ontario what a journey what a journey so what gave um give the listeners a little bit of a of a backstory what uh what gave you your inspiration to get to get into sports casting to get into like doing radio just the whole uh well, I was always fascinated with broadcasting, Matthew. I, 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 when I was growing up, I didn't think that I could actually have a career doing it. And I always enjoyed, you know, watching baseball, hockey, football, watching and listening to sports, how they, how they created the, the scene with their words and their pictures. And their visuals. And and I used to read Sports Illustrated religiously and subscribe to it and read the stories and was fascinated. Especially when I was in the first few years of high school, we were in uh, CFB Greenwood, which is in the Annapolis Valley of Nova Scotia. And it's not close to anything. This is pre-internet. We had like five channels. So that Sports Illustrated coming uh, every month was like gold. And you know, you would devour just so you knew what was going on. And it wasn't until my later years of high school, at the time I was in grade 13 in the 1980s, and I really thought I really wanted to get into broadcasting. Now, when I started in Humber College in the 1980s, there was no sports radio in Canada. There were no podcasts. TSN was just starting. So sports as we know it now did not exist. So I started in music radio, and then after bouncing around a few music stations and then in music and working in sports, in 95, I got a chance to work at the fan in the original location on Holly Street, and that sort of put me on my sports journey. Uh, you uh, you just meant, you mentioned that uh, you used to work uh, in music radio. Um, yeah, previously in the, uh, on the podcast, we had uh, Josh Croak on, and uh, he he discussed, he talked about his journey as a music uh, writer, music as a journalist. Uh, you got any stories coming out of that? You, uh, you'd like to tell? I, uh, when I was in music radio, I got to meet people like Meatloaf and Robert Plant, and it was kind of cool. But I also, I remember vividly, um, they did like a fantasy baseball thing at the Big O. And they had all the Montreal radio, TV, and print journalists put together like a baseball team. 
And a Claude Raymond, who was from RDS, who was a major league pitcher, and he pitched for the Mets and the Expos, and I think the Cardinals of memory serves, but he was pitching. Uh, I remember I got a clean base hit off him. And as I ran to first, he kind of looked at me, gave me a little nod. I'm like, yeah, I was like, yes, I got an actual hit off a former major league pitcher. And um, you don't realize till you're at home plate how far the fence is in a major league ballpark. People think, well, you know, why didn't they hit a home run? So you're standing there at home plate looking at a pitch thinking that fence is a long way away and you really got to smoke it to hit a home run. So uh, doing different things. And then I, when I got my opportunity to get into sports, I said yes to everything. And I was a producer. I was a reporter. I did up like whatever they wanted me to do. I was going to do because I loved it so much. That's All right, cool. I have a question here about, like, in high school. And did, did you attend you – you attended college, I assume? Yeah, Brody, I went to Humber College uh, for radio broadcasting. Okay. And as growing up, you said Nova Scotia was where you were in high school. There was no internet. So there probably wasn't any paper, but I just thought I'd ask, like, was there, like, a school newspaper that kind of got you into it or anything, like, in high school that you did to the kind of – really grew your passion for sports broadcasting? No, Brody. I, I did grade 10 and 11 in Nova Scotia. And then after grade 11, we moved to Borden, Ontario, which is west of Barrie. And uh, I did grade 12 and 13 there. Now, when I was in Camp Borden, I was exposed to a lot of Toronto radio and TV. So at the time, Sportsline was just starting. And that was a highlight show, which would be 11.30. They had the news at 11. Then they had Sportsline at 11.30. So that was... In grade 12 and 13, that was the first time I saw a half-hour sports highlight show. And then they would have interview clips with players and coaches, and I was absolutely fascinated by that. And looking at the highlights of the different games, and, and in 82, 83, 84, that was a big deal for it to be in high school to be able to watch sports highlights on the TV because otherwise the local news package would just show a few clips. But this was a half-hour, and they were showing the NBA and the NFL and – different leagues and they were talking to amateur athletes and and I was I was like this is awesome and and so and and I know it's hard to believe now because you can get everything on your phone and your tablet and you can create your own thing with YouTube and it's 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 a world of difference and when I start, got into Humber College and I can remember vividly they went around the room there was about 60 of us in the the class uh, my freshman year and they were asking different people about their experience. And everyone talked about, well, I was in a small town and I did this and I did that. Uh, or some of them had a like a little mini radio station involved with a high school. Well, my high school had nothing. And I got to me, and I'm not kidding, Brody. I said, well, I listened to the radio. And that was my only experience that I listened to the radio. And I really liked it. And they all kind of looked at me like, that's your experience? And uh, because I literally started from the ground floor from day one. And, and one of the first things they did is they made us go up to the front of the room with a tape recorder and read about 15 seconds of copy of what would have been a, a mock commercial. And then they played it. And you want to talk about shrinking and embarrassment and, oh, my goodness, I'm horrible. And that's what it was. And and you realize how much work it has to go into it to be good and and to this day, I'm constantly learning how to work smarter, how to be more efficient, what else can I do? And that's something I learned back then. I will learn through my all my stops in my sports career. I've learned working with Bob McKenzie. It's it's to be – like stay in the game and be semi-successful and carve a career out. It takes work and sacrifice, and you have to make a commitment. You can't do it half-ass. You have to be all-in and be committed to doing it on a daily basis to stay in the game. You mentioned Bob McKenzie, and um, we're obviously going to get to talking about uh, the book that you two co-wrote, Everyday Hockey Heroes 2. But uh, before we get into that, just uh, to get into writing in general, um, you've, co-wrote bo- you've co-wrote books with uh, t- former Leafs like Ty Domi, Wendell Clark, and Brian Burrard. As well as Taito, my son Max. Mm-hmm. What, uh, like, how did you uh, get into the uh, the writing scene, like the the book writing scene? It's a great question. And I was at Sportsnet at the time, and I had just finished a year while I was at Sportsnet and Sportsnet Radio. This would have been about two thousand one, two thousand two, 
uh, I was also the radio voice of the Argos. And I called their whole season as the radio play-by-play guy. And then the next year, the owner had some money issues and they weren't going to have a radio broadcast of the home games. It was only going to be on like TSN. And sportsnet.ca was just on the ground floor, just starting. And they said, you know, Jim, would you mind writing a weekly CFL power ranking blog? Because we need some CFL content, some Canadian content for a website. And we don't have anyone else on staff that wants to write about it, knows about it. Everyone else was hockey or basketball or baseball or whatnot. I said, well, sure. So this would have been about 2003 and I, I enjoyed it. I would write a weekly power rankings and, you know, people would comment, disagree, agree. And then I started to write more and then learn more. And as I learned more and I wrote more, I started to write longer pieces, different styles of pieces, magazine articles. And about 10 years after the fact, I got approached by, it would have been nine years after that, I got approached by a literary agent about the possibility of doing a book. And about a year and a half after that, we ended up uh, doing a book deal with Ty Dolmy to do his book. And that sort of started it. But it was basically nine or 10 years of just me writing on my own for sportsnet.ca because I felt it would make me a better broadcaster if I was a better writer. And I, it was something I enjoyed doing and it sort of opened up different doors to my career without even realizing what I was doing it. And so, you said you've been working with Sportsnet and like guys like Bob McKenzie, that's, that's, that's a guy like TSN. Like, so do you kind of get that not by like Simon and Schuster, like the book publishing company, is that kind of who set you up with that? Or did you reach out to him or did he reach out to you? Or how did it really come to be with Bob McKenzie? Well, but Bob and I have known each other a long time and we have crossed paths at different hockey events, Stanley Cups, playoffs leave so we had developed a, a, a professional relationship uh, a mutual admiration and respect for each other for what i've done obviously what bob has done because you know he's the hockey insider so we we were not unfamiliar with each other and we did know each other and there was a um i i, I guess you know there was a, a a friendship there that we 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 totally would respect and work with each other so when the first book came along, we started working on it, but Bob wasn't on board yet. And he was quite, with the World Juniors come around, it's a month long for all people involved. It's one month, basically, of nothing but World Junior Hockey, as you can imagine, because you have the selection mm-hmm. camp, and then they have the, the, the round-robin games, and then the playoff games till the gold medal game. I mean, it's one month nonstop, nothing but junior hockey. So then when he was done, uh, they sent him a couple of the chapters I had finished already, and he took a look at them and he went, oh, wow. Oh, I want to be part of this. And then Bob jumped on board, became a big part of it, and was a real guiding hand and a, a real leader. It's almost like a hockey team making a big trade at the deadline and picking up a, a, a real respected veteran player to bring everyone together and lead you to the Stanley Cup. That's what it felt like when Bob came on board. And we work well. You could say you could say Joe Thornton. You can say Joe Thornton no. to bring it to bring the lead. Well, uh, I would think I would think more it would be the equivalent of someone picking up uh, Steve Eiserman at his prime than Joe at his age. But you know oh. that. Um, but yeah, so then Bob and I, you know, and we've always got along well, and we really enjoyed the book tour because pre-COVID we could do an actual book tour, and it was a lot of fun. And so we both talked that if we ever do another one, we'd like to work together again. And so when they came approached us, we were like, yeah, sure. Uh, I'm going to backtrack a little bit to uh, like, as you were saying, you were discussing the, uh, the world juniors. Uh, this is going to be a little bit off topic, but um, did you see Kirby Dak's beautiful setup in the, in the selection camp? It was on the TSN Instagram page. I think I saw a snippet of it. Uh, I'm not going oh, buy it because Quinton Byfield, I'm in Newmarket. He's from Newmarket. And I remember giving him an award uh, as a, when he was a midget, for the Yorkston Co Express. So I always keep an eye on him, but I did see a, a little snippet of Kirby, that play from Kirby. I mean, this is the one thing with Team Canada. It's almost an embarrassment of riches every year at the World Juniors, and never more so now because the NHL still doesn't know when they're going to start again. There's, I mean, there's complete limbo for the National Hockey League when there's going to be camp and when there's going to be a season. So for a lot of these teams, when in doubt, you might as well go to the World Junior Camp and get some experience and get some, some actual playing time. Yeah, it's it's highly possible that this could be the best World Junior team in years. 
Well, probably since um, I would think since Sidney Crosby was part of the World Juniors, that would have been during the one of the lockouts. That was an unbelievable team. I think that was the one that went to South Dakota. Um, that was a pretty good. Um, yeah, I think so. Honestly, I don't. Remember. You know, it, it I think South, it was South Dakota, Dakota. Yeah, and um, and I, that was an unbelievable hockey team. But yeah, there's. I mean the. It is an embarrassment of riches for Hockey Canada with this team this year. There's no doubt about it. That's what we like to hear. Canadian podcast is what we like to hear. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. So, yeah. Um, well, yeah, um, talking about the World Juniors and how you said it's people want to come play for them because they don't want to be sitting around. And if you look, especially it's on opportune circumstances for all OHL players, which kind of gives Canada and some of the – European teams an advantage because there's no hitting and I don't feel like most of the players want to play if there's no hitting. Well, I mean, I think the the bottom line is these players who are going into their draft year realize that if you're a high-end player and you're drafted, you could be playing in the NHL as a rookie without going back to junior. Yeah. Now, I'm pretty sure they're still hitting in the National Hockey League. So to have a season of your last year junior of no hitting to go to the NHL and hitting, you could be opening yourself up for potential injury because you're playing with men now. And that's, I mean, that's a big difference between a group of 16 to 19 year olds and then 18, 19 year olds to 35 year olds. And that, that would be the concern for me is the, that potential of going without it. No body contact to contact at the NHL level as a whole. It's, it's like a different sport. Mm-hmm. Yeah, do you do you see since um, this since like we've seen in the past the past few years the decline in fights the decline in like more of the physical side of the game? Do you see a, a time when the NHL goes to a no contact league? I don't see no contact. I I, I can't see that happen because the two players are going for the puck. It's impossible not to have contact at the defenseman and a foul. Sorry, mm-hmm. sorry, my my mistake. When I say when I say non contact, I mean like you're like. No, like intentional body checking. Like if it's like, like oh, um, happened, Matthew. Like, like what you like what you see, like what you see in minor hockey when you see like when they have the body. Like, no, it's no body checking. No, that won't happen in the NHL level. The, 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 they would agree to a lot of things. Maybe even putting more stringent rules around fighting, but there'll always be body contact. That's a big part of the sport. Honestly, okay. like in, in my opinion, my opinion on that. Just for a second, like I might be in the minority here, but. I am a guy. I'm a guy who loves the physical. Who loves physical hockey. Who loves the uh, like to see a fight. Like hockeyfights.com, one of my favorite websites to uh, to go and just uh, spend some time on and just watch. Just watching some old. Fights. But even if you don't fight, physical hockey in the playoffs can be the difference between winning and losing. I mean, you could have all the skill in the world, and you want the skill in the goaltending, but you also want the physicality because it, it's it becomes a battle of attrition. All those rounds, four rounds, like week after week of playoff hockey, and if you can physically wear the other team down, you, that might be the difference between winning and losing. Mm-hmm. And as you said about the physicality part, because if you look at the last two Stanley Cup winners, they both had physical guys. Well, it just happens to be the same guy, but Pat Maroon <laughs> and guys like that, that kind of pushes you over the edge. And I, I don't think anyone could name a – Stanley Cup winner that hasn't had a physical play, at least one physical no, player on there. I can't. Yeah. Um... All right. Well, I think we should segue into this is a perfect segue into the next topic where you talked about how the NHL doesn't know when they're going to start. The earliest date I've heard is January 1st. They're still aiming for that, but. Do you think that there's really any possibility that January 1st actually can happen? There's always a possibility, Brody. There, I, there is so much on the line for the players and the owners and the league. It, it, it's in their best interest to get back to playing. And this is why. The, the NBA has already laid it out. December 1st, training camp. December 22nd, the season's on. 72 games. Then they go to playoffs. They're set. NFL, they've expanded the playoffs. Their season's going on. Super Bowl's happening. They're all set. Baseball's looking ahead to 2021. Um, hockey doesn't want to be left out. They 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 better get their act together, get that squared away, figure out their plan, and get going. Because there's a lot of people hungry to watch sports. 
And if it comes January and they're not playing, people will fill that sports void with other sports, especially in the United States, where they do still need to sell the game in a lot of markets, and they don't want to be left out of that. Um, building on what he was saying, with the, what Brody was saying with the, uh, the NHL start day, there's been rumors, and now the, uh, they're, they're not gaining as much traction, or starting to lose traction, but... There, were, there has been rumors about uh, starting it off, starting off with a game at Lake Louise outdoors. Uh, do you think that would be a um, like a wise decision on the NHL's perspective? On the NHL's perspective, I know as a fan, I would personally love to see it because it would be bringing it back to in times in tough times like the, like we're in now with COVID and the pandemic, like the pandemic going on. Bringing it back to Lake uh, to a pond hockey game would be, in my opinion, like a great fan service, but. In terms of just like the business side of things, what do you like? Do you think that's a possibility? I tell you why it is because let's be honest, sports until we get to a certain level, it's going to be a TV studio sport with either no fans or very limited fans. So why not do something? You know how amazing that would look as a TV viewer to see the mountains and the lake, and it would be incredible. And I, I would watch it. Who wouldn't watch that? We watch the outdoor game in a stadium. Why wouldn't we watch an outdoor game in a a slice of heaven like that. So I think it would make a lot of sense to do something like that. Yeah. Uh, from per, speaking from a personal experience, I went, I was actually at the, um, the Centennial Classic in Toronto. It was the, I was at the alumni game at BMO field and stuff like the outdoor game, just the whole air, like idea of it's just, it's beautiful. Like it's back. It's granted that was at a, at a football so- slash soccer stadium, but like it just brings it back to its roots. Yeah, and you're in the mountains. I mean, and, and one of the most picturesque spots in the world. And it's in Canada. It doesn't get much more perfect than that. And you would watch that on TV all at like no problem. I'd watch mm-hmm. it. I'd watch a pay per view. <laughs> and you even got. Uh, you could throw on. You say like Calgary, Edmonton. They wear their reverse retros that they just came out with. I feel like that's the perfect way Couldn't to agree more. those. As oh, a business we'll, standpoint. We'll get into those later. We'll get into those later. <laughs> um, and you're you Yeah, sorry, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. No, no, go go. No, you you can go. Uh you said that you're a, before we started the show, you're more of a yeah. Leafs fan. And so you've obviously been keeping in touch with the Leafs off season. So I just want to know quickly your thoughts on how the Leafs did. Why? But yeah, like how Dubas did Dubas, this offseason. Okay, you just you just stole my question, I but okay. Made some necessary moves. Um, I like Wayne Simmons. He's uh, a, a kind of physical player that sometimes I felt was lacking, but he also has some skill. If you look at his numbers, he's not an unskilled player at all, and he does have some touch around the net. But you know, Joel Thornton has been there, done that, and. The Leafs have a core group of extremely talented, skilled players, but very young. And I can remember years ago, uh, Wayne Gretzky and Mark Messier talking about when they were young with the Oilers and still trying to figure it out. The Edmonton Oilers acquired Mark Napier, who was a veteran player who had played in the WHA and won Stanley Cup with the Montreal Canadiens. And then he shows up in Edmonton, and they said they grew up a lot. He taught them a lot about how to take your game to the next level as a professional. And they taught, he taught him lessons that stayed with him the rest of their career. And I, Joe Fortin's the kind of person that could, I mean, I don't know, is he going to play 12, 14 minutes a night? Whatever. But it's his presence, his ability to teach these kids things they may not learn otherwise, um, that I think is worth the acquisition. I do like it. And staying on Toronto. And you uh, said about. Sorry, sorry, go ahead. And you said about how Napier molded that Oilers or the Oilers team there. Like Joe Thornton, you got a guy like Nick Robertson who's coming into the league. Even a guy like Jimmy VC is still on the younger side. Him and Kerfoot, if you throw him in there, I feel like that could really do exactly that and that could bolster their that's, potential. That's why you get someone like Joe Thornton is because um, he's done so much. He's accomplished so much. He's played so long. He's not going to be afraid. There's going to be no filter with Joe Thornton in the dressing room when he has to say something. If he's, It's like, see something, say something. Now, younger players are always thinking, oh, you know, this, that, the politics of the room. But what about the – he's – at his point in his career, Joe doesn't care who he offends, what happened. There's none of that. He's just going to say it. 
Uh, yeah, and I've heard some people say that they think that the with bringing in a guy like Thornton and Simmons kind of some people have trying to been saying that it undermines the leadership ability of Tavares. No, I think it enhances it. Um, any good team and veteran player I've ever spoken to will clearly say that um, the leadership in a NHL, a really good NHL team, is usually a group of players. It's not just one voice. And that's important to remember that if you look at some of the great teams, it's not just one guy standing up and saying, come on, boys, let's do this. It's it's people lead in different ways and inspire in different ways, and you do need more than one person. Um, Makes sense. Make, build, so staying uh, with the Leafs right now, um, with the uh, – Looming possibility. I've, I at the moment I don't know if it's confirmed or not. With the AHL and ECHL regarding their seasons, um, say for uh, say the say both seasons, like both minor leagues cancel their season. How do you think this will affect uh, a Leafs organization with players like Lilligren, with players like pro, like granted they're more B B level prospects, but like guys like. Uh, Philip Crawl, Justin Brazo, Brazo, and uh, and Ryan Fairberg, to, just to name a few. Like how how could you see that going for? Like how how can you see the Leafs um, adjusting for the poss- for those possibilities of of? Uh, I really season? don't know. This is uncharted territory for everybody, and I'm not sure what you do. Um, and there has been talk I have heard of expanding the roster. You're allowed to carry so. So prime prospects that may have been on the bubble, you'll just have them with the team and you'll almost have like a full extra team of players that practice every day with you and skate with you. Because otherwise I'm not sure what else the teams could do that are grooming players for the future. It puts them in a very difficult situation because you don't want them just sitting around doing nothing. And you want to monitor on and off the ice. How are they working out? Are they getting stronger? Are they getting quicker? That's all very important in their progress. Um, one one thing that comes to mind just off the top of my head would be to have sort of like a practice squad where you have say say you have the like the NHL team the AHL and ECHL you have them all staying in one city like so for example you'd have the Marlies and the Growlers staying in Toronto they would practice like they would practice out in um, oh my god I always call I always call the Mastercard uh, the Ford Performance Center and say and then you would have like just it, it would be the making just to make the best out of a bad situation. You could have them like staying in the facilities, training with the coaching staff there, the the trainers there, and have them uh, practice like play against each other, like just like like an extreme like an extended training camp, just to maintain their um, their strength and their conditioning. Do you think something like that would be? It's feasible? totally feasible, and the Maple Leafs have the resources to do it. Really, none of this will happen until they figure out what they're doing at the NHL level. Because I think that's the bigger priority for everyone involved is when does the season start? When are they starting camp? So when they know when they're actually having a training camp before the start of the season, they can make decisions on their prospects. In your in your opinion, right, when I, do you, sorry, let me just uh, just yeah, r- real quick. Ahead. In your opinion, when would this season be starting? Like in terms of training, like. Not uh, like season itself aside, when would training camp start? And when do you think we would get an announcement about well, that? To me, that? they have to start training camp no earlier than the 14th. You'd need a good three weeks before the season starts to get guys back in shape. And here's the problem. So you'd be starting camp on the 14th, say for sake of argument. You need a couple of days off for Christmas. I mean, families want to be together. So then you'd lose a couple of days for people to be with their families in the holidays then you can go back to camp. You know, it's it's not an ideal scenario at all because typically teams and coaches take about a good two, three days off over the Christmas holidays just to get a break and spend time with their families. So it, it, you'd start camp, you'd have a little break, go back to camp. So with that in mind, I, I think ideally they'd like to start their camp around December the 10th knowing they'd have a little break around Christmas and Boxing Day. But what do you think that would be like doable? Considering at the time of recording, it's November twentieth, and uh, I'm not sure about how how it works in the states, but I know in Canada, all everybody entering has to quarantine for fourteen days. So, well, okay, so 
As long as they have a deal in place, let me do the math here, by November 27th, 28th, they can get their butts into the respective cities, quarantine enough, and get them on the ice. So, yeah, as long as they, before the end of November, they have some sort of deal, they could get their quarantine and be ready for camp. Okay, and um, uh, again, talking in terms of quarantine and this whole situation that that, uh, we're all in, um, it's been announced that today that the Raptors will not be playing out of Scotiabank. They'll be playing out of um, the Tampa Bay Lightning Arena because the uh, the government would not allow teams to enter in and out. What do you see that as a possible um, obstacle for the uh, for the NHL playing with their teams in in Canada? Like, would would you see? Would we? Is there a possibility that we could see a team like Toronto uh, like playing out of say? Buffalo, to name, just to name a city, or a team like Vancouver playing out of... Playing uh, out of if anything's going to happen, it's going to be an all-Canadian division and just teams traveling within Canada. And then they'll worry about cross-border come playoff time. But the best way around it is very simple. Have a couple of all-American divisions and then one all-Canadian division, and they don't have to worry about travel. That, that would... Yeah, I saw uh, I saw a mock division, mock divisions, and it was pretty interesting. So it was all-Canadian division, and then... You have Eastern, it Western, and, and otherwise, it's not too far for a lot of the trips for these teams, especially California. You're just going up and down the coast. Yeah, mm-hmm. it it makes it like it it could build some new rivalries, which kind of would. I feel like it could help grow the game within different cities. Well, I mean, as, as a hockey fan, if it's an all Canadian division or whatever division, I don't really care. Uh, you know. I, they're back playing. You're looking at the standings. You're following your teams, following the stats. Are they getting better? Are they getting worse? Will they make the playoffs? Instead of just sitting around and imagining, just get them on the ice. Make it all Canadian division. Let's get back to playing hockey. And I, I think people need this. They need that distraction. They need it, it's especially through the depth of winter. We're really going to need that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially with uh, all the all the restrictions that are coming on in the in the winter. Like I saw today, and actually I think it's uh, Ontario Premier Doug Ford is is discussing it right now. But there's like it, we should. Um, I was reading today that we should expect heavy restrictions, especially in like say the Toronto area and like the areas in Ontario that have been hit hard by this virus. So I know for myself, even that like even as the restrictions were lessened, like I'm still going going nuts with. Uh, with no sports, so the more, I agree. the more the I better. I totally agree. All right, and Matthew was talking about restrictions in Ontario, and I'm from Manitoba, and it's it's really bad out here right now, and you probably heard on the news about this yeah. protest, yeah. anti-mask protest in Steinbeck. And the restrictions are really bad here. I think they just announced today, starting today, that you can't have one person, more than, you can't have anyone who's not inside your house. You can't go out with anyone. You have to do only essentials, like stores can only sell. I think they came up with a full list. I think like socks is on there, food, all those kind of things. Like you can't sell anything non-essential. And it makes Christmas shopping a lot harder. And for anyone who's not done their shopping yet, you have to go online. And for the people that don't have the means of shopping online, like I I feel bad for some people because it just, the restrictions and I feel like this is going to lead to a, a lot of well, I, I struggles you, down all the you have line. to do is go to Amazon or chaprasindigo.ca and you can order Everyday Hockey yeah. Heroes Volume 2. Makes a perfect Christmas present and you don't have to go anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> That's some good marketing. All right. Well, I feel like talking about the NHL. So I got this is a bit out there, but I saw this post on Instagram. It was a fake post, but it I, it just made me think. Because it said like Arizona should relocate, and where do you think the most logical city, if Arizona or any other team was to relocate, would be? And I've seen games in Arizona. I really like the arena, and I like Arizona. And if if like I'm a player, Brody, I would I want to stay playing there because the Scottsdale area, it's so beautiful. Yeah, and I can see why they like being there, and their families like staying there. But as far as relocating, uh, I, I, that's a tough one because. These arenas are not cheap, but then you have to staff them. And and with COVID, is it a good business decision to be making a new arena or cutting a deal with a new arena? So 
right now I don't see any movement. I know they've always been talking about years moving Phoenix to a Canadian city, but uh, I mean, if to me, Quebec City would be the absolute perfect location because they have a brand new arena, the Videotron Center that's only a few years old, and they, it's mm-hmm. a great city and a great hockey history there. So to me, that would make the only sense. But Gary Bettman, like, he's not really keen on more teams in Canada. He's really trying to do everything to keep if he's going to be new teams, mm-hmm. that there'll be new teams in the United States, not in Canada. And that's part of the problem. I mean, um, mm-hmm. personally, sorry to interrupt. I've but heard. I can, oh, sorry. Obviously, like in my like, in my opinion, it does suck that uh, um, Canadian teams are like expanding to Canadian teams are becoming less and like less and less likely as, as he wants to grow the game more in the States. But you do, I do, I do understand where he's coming from. Like, Hockey in Canada is an amazing, like, it's huge. It's the biggest sport in the country. And having, like, in the States, not so much, if not, like, if not even close. So, yeah, I mean, you've had teams, mm-hmm. like, you've had expansions, like, the, the California ones that have worked out. Granted, granted, it also helps that the Kings got the best player in history, but well, I do, see it, I do see it as a possibility for growing. Yeah, I, it's... You could only squeeze so much of the hockey market in the U.S. So then you have to think, well, if we get most of our revenue from Canadian teams, why don't we? Why don't we have another Canadian team? We'll make more money because the more money the league makes, the more money the owners and the players mm-hmm. make. You do make a good point. And actually, to add on to that, however, there's not much to squeeze out of the U.S. market. But if you think about it. I think the real problem for Canadian bringing in Canadian cities is there's not much Canadian cities left. Like you got your Regina. I've heard like bring one into the, the Toronto area, like a Markham or Hamilton team. Like I think that'd be good, but there's not really many okay, cities. Well, I live in Newmarket just Quebec north of City. Markham. Markham doesn't have an arena. So you, you'd have to spend big bucks to build mm-hmm. an 18,000 seat arena. And I don't know who's going to pay for it because the city and the province said, well, we're not giving you money. So yeah. someone's going to have to spend $350 million of their own dollars to build an arena. The Hamilton Arena would need about $150 million of renovations to make an NHL worthy. So then you get, okay, I'm going to spend so much money to buy a team and then update the arena. And so I, that's the issue. Yeah, in a perfect world, you could put a team there, but you need an NHL-level facility. That's, that's a reality as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah, loud and clear. Can you hear us? Oh, sorry, yeah, no, okay. I'm all good. It just cut out there for a second, so. All right, well, I'll just, it, you were just at the end of the question, the answer, so I'll just okay. ask another follow-up question, I'll edit uh, this out. Wait, real quick, before you, um, wait, right, before so, you conti- uh, get back into it, uh, after we yeah. uh, we finish this, uh, this interview, do you mind hanging on for another minute or two after? No, Jim? sure, yeah, no problem. All right, per- perfect, perfect. Yeah. Right, you want yeah. to count me in just so it's better uh, for editing? Okay. Three, two, one, go. All right. And yeah, talking about the NHL arenas, it's a lot of money to build it. But I feel like if you got, like, Hamilton probably has, knowing from the Tidecats, they have probably some of the most f- passionate fans in Canada. If you'd bring an NHL team there, I feel like they would be able to get the means of money to build one but now, i know that's the bottom line is it becomes a chicken and the egg thing who's going to have the money to build the facility to bring the team and mm-hmm. it's uh, unfortunately i know fans don't look at it this way but the league looks at it from a big business big picture sort of thing where's the best tv money going to come where we're going to get the most attention where's going to where are we going to get the most social media pushed you know it's it's more than just the arena now i think digital media and all the things to go with it. It's a, it's a big question. It's not as simple as, well, they're big hockey fans there. Why don't you just put a team there? Well, that does, that's not how it works now in 2020. Mm-hmm. Especially, especially considering like using yeah. Hamilton as an example, like uh, if you have, if you're like, in the vicinity of another NHL team, like again, Hamilton being in this within a couple hours of Toronto in my opinion, they would be outshine like Toronto would outshine them for in terms of media attention and everything. But also on the contrary to that, mm-hmm. um, I'm all for in my opinion, I'm all for um, a Hamilton expansion because then that means that 
Toronto hockey fans can actually get cheap tickets? No, that's why Buffalo is always filled when the Leafs are playing the Sabres. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah. And Florida, Florida over March break, uh, over the March. Uh, and- yeah, yeah, yeah. We know you have a lot of stuff to do uh, with this pre- with this press tour for the book. So, uh, every everyday hockey heroes two written by Bo- uh, co written by Bob McKenzie and Jim Lang is in stores now. You want to give us a little bit of a uh, want to give us just a little bit of information about the book for those uh, who haven't who haven't had a chance to take a look at it yet. It's basically a compilation of inspiring stories on and off the ice. People involved in hockey from different backgrounds. Uh, different ethnic backgrounds, different sexualities, uh, men, women, transgender, uh, people of the BIPOC community who have overcome different things. People have suffered big injuries, have come back, and are still with hockey, breaking barriers in hockey, making a difference in hockey, and inspiring people. So it, while it is a hockey book, it's also a life book, and it's, it's a feel-good book. And especially now, we need something like this. We need to read stories about people who have overcome and are making a difference and using hockey as a way to make a difference in, in our society, in our community. And uh, where, and where can we find this, uh, this book? Where is it available? Chapters Indigo, Amazon, uh, Walmart, Costco, anywhere you buy books, you'll find Everyday Hockey Heroes Volume 2, Bob McKenzie and myself, some fantastic stories, including stuff with Andrew Cagliano with the Dallas Stars, uh, Daniel Sovajo, who coached Team Canada to win the gold medal in the Olympics in 2002. People like that. Jack Jablonski, who was a star high school hockey player in Minnesota until he suffered a devastating neck injury and became paralyzed. And now he works for the LA Kings. Um, Gene, uh, Jeff McLean and Dean Petrock, who created Pride Tape, the Rainbow Pride Hockey Tape, they created it. And the story behind how they did it and the impact it's made it's pretty amazing. Emily Castingay is the first female registered NHLPA agent in Canada, and her top client is none other than Alexis Lafreniere, who went number one overall to the Rangers. So there are wow. women and people on different levels of mm-hmm. the community, different uh, segments of society, making an impact, making a difference in hockey. There's Katie Gay, who is breaking barriers, is a, a female referee. She was the first woman to referee an NCAA men's hockey game, the first woman to referee an NCAA preseason rookie tournament game. And it's only a matter of time before there are women officiating Mm -hmm. NHL hockey games. They're in the NBA and the NFL, the NHL, it's on the way. Mm -hmm. All right. And yeah, talking about the the pride tape and just a couple months ago, we heard this uh, QMJHL player prospect came out as gay and that kind of that kind of like I don't want to say that it it kind of broadens the audience because people are like oh that that's cool let's follow this kid and maybe I don't know I don't know um oh, I feel like totally. it helps to grow the game even if like if you have players of Canada, different Cody. ethnicities no 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 I, I know what you're getting at and, and that's what we are as a nation now and yeah. and uh, I have one daughter yeah. in university one in grade 12 mm-hmm. to them whatever your sexuality is they don't care do you play hockey? Or do you not play hockey? You're a good person or you're not a good person. So mm-hmm. for hockey fans, you're like, oh, okay, that person's gay. Hey, they're a really good player. It's not an issue. And hey, they won the game. I'm happy. Yeah. You don't care if they've got pride tape or they're openly gay or part of the LGBTQ community. It doesn't matter at all. And that's a good thing for hockey. And uh, the Florida yeah. Panthers, I believe it's the Florida Panthers, they just hired the first black assistant GM in the NHL. So it's going to be a matter of time uh, yep. in the next 5, 10, 15 years where we have a, a woman who's got a prominent managerial position in the NHL, maybe a woman who's a referee in the NHL, a black GM, uh, you know, coaching. Uh, and that's all happening, and that's all happening in front of us, and that's the future of hockey. And it's that's what we sort of talk about in this book, Everyday Hockey Heroes Volume 2. We tell you stories about how the game is changing for the better and maybe there were some things that weren't so good they had to go through, but now they're making a difference to make it good for future generations. Mm-hmm. And it helps, yeah, exactly, F- future future generations, like people that may have come out as gay as hockey players. Hockey dressing rooms is probably one of the fiercest places oh, oh, you'll ever yes. go to, like a boys' hockey Totally, I couldn't agree more. So if you can... If it opens up for different people, it it really can, yeah, it grows the game. It's that's the, probably the biggest way to grow the game is to have 
people of all different ethnicities, sexual orientations, LGBTQ communities, and I feel like it's the or, best. Let's face thing it, when women started officiating in the NFL and NBA, it was a story for a few minutes, then the game started, then you forgot about it. You know, because you're watching the game and they're making a call or they're not making a call. It's yeah. the same thing, no matter what the person's sexuality or background or ethnicity is. You, you, if they're, if they're, you're coaching or managing and winning, you don't care. I mean, if you're the fan of a certain team, you just want to win. You don't yeah. care what they do in their private life and off the ice and away from the arena. It doesn't matter yeah. at all because you're, hey, we just want a playoff round. I'm a happy fan. And that's what it's become now. And that's that's good for hockey. Yeah. People are able to be themselves and live their lives and identify as whatever they want to and just, but still have that passion for hockey like anybody else and be part of the hockey family. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I feel like it is still a problem that some people can't accept it. Some like there's little, little groups of people in different places that kind of can't accept it. And I feel like people are going to have to get, like people can't accept it. There's like a lot of people that just don't agree with this stuff. And they're like, Oh no, this is bad for the game. I don't want to see this. This isn't, I don't want hockey to get like this. I mean, I feel like those people kind of shouldn't be able to. Well, buddy, um, there, there, there's people like that in all I don't word society. This. You can't, it's, you can't get rid of all of them. Yeah. That's just the way it is. But the, the more and more people who are accepting, yeah. who are open, who are understanding the importance of hockey changing for the better and understanding that this is good for not just hockey, but Canada, good for society. It makes us a better country and a, a better community. Mm-hmm. Couldn't agree more. All right. Okay. Well, uh, we got one more topic, and then and then we're going to let you go because I know you don't got much more time. So about building the business and trying to make some extra money, the NHL just released their reverse retro jerseys. And do you think it's a gimmick, cash grab? Well, or it, it, it is a business. I, I think game? about European soccer. They're Some of the top football slash soccer teams on the planet have – four or five different versions of their main kit with, with logos. And I remember being in Barcelona a few years ago and, uh, you know, the Barcelona, you know, Messi jerseys, there must have been like five or six different versions of them at the Nike store in this one mall we were at. And if you're a fan, you don't care. And some of them, I think like the Colorado Avalanche, uh, Quebec Nordique retro Jersey, I think looks amazing. It's amazing. And that kind of stuff, it it is, it really is. And you're thinking, so if it's done right, it looks good. Fans will want to own it. It's good for the league. And it's good for the league, not just from a money standpoint, but it becomes becomes something you want to wear. I I know in my daughter's high school, that as much as there's hockey stuff that a lot of the, the, the kids wear at the school, there's a ton of basketball, especially rapper stuff. So for the NHL to stay relevant, for, for young fans to say to their parents, oh, I want that as a gift for my birthday or for the holidays, that's the kind of stuff they need to come up with, and I think it's good for the league. Along, uh, I completely agree, mm-hmm. along with bringing back like certain iconic logos, like like you said, the um, the Colorado Avalanche with the Nordiques, like, I'm looking. I'm looking on the NHL on NHL.com right now, I'm looking at over. Oh, that is beautiful! That the Canes with the Whalers. And, and that's and some of the old school NHL logos um, and the, the old school NHL color schemes. And, um, and it's, so you still have your main one, but it's, Hey, it's okay. I know the NFL took some heat for it, but I kind of like it sometimes when they go back to the, the uniforms of the 1930s and forties once in a while. And um, I remember the Raptors, yeah. they wore a Toronto Huskies uniform back when Toronto had an NBA team in 1947-48, whatever it was. It's, it's, it's not something you do all the time, but it's nice as a collector to have it, whether it's a hat or a shirt. And it's, I think it's, as a fan, I like that kind of stuff. Oh, I have, speaking on the, the Huskies, I have that jersey and it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's gorgeous. I- yeah, no, no. And about, like, how I'd love to see Vancouver Canucks bring, like, a Grizzlies jersey. Wow. It kind of crosses paths. I feel like that'd be a good mark. Because NBA probably is one of the biggest leagues in probably probably the biggest. I, I don't know. If, correct me if I'm wrong. But I feel like that'd be a well, great so If you're a Canucks, you want the old V from the 1980s. Most loved franchise. Uh, yeah, that's kind of cool as well. Yeah. 
Honestly, I think they I think they did pretty well with their the jersey the reverse retro that they came out with the blue and green the yeah. the, yeah. the the half and half blue and green looks beautiful in my opinion. Yeah, no, I kind of sad. It's kind of sad how it outshadows the uh, the, the Toronto Leafs awesome. jersey, uh, which on the NHL website is right next to it. And <laughs> I honestly, the least one, I'm not a big fan. It's okay, you know what I mean. But the Quebec one and some of the other ones, I'm like, oh my god, it's amazing. I want that. The least one's like, oh, that's you know. But some of the other ones, it really jumps out at you. Yeah, yeah. They had so much opportunity. Oh, really? Like they had such a big opportunity, mm-hmm. and the like the Leafs and the Islanders, like just the name. The LA Kings with the modern king with the purple and yellow is that's gorgeous as well. Oh, amazing! But and uh, just mm-hmm. again talking about the Islanders and their jersey, how much do you think Lou Lamorello had to do with that with uh, picking that jersey? Because you know, like. We all we all know Lou Lamorello as a no nonsense old school general manager. And how much influence do you think he had on picking this Islanders jersey and like with its just basic design, as opposed to say another one like bringing back the fisherman jersey? Which... Matthew, one hundred percent, one hundred percent. Lou runs hockey teams old school, iron fist. This is how it's going to be. You're going to look and act and play a certain way. And I'm not here to make friends. I'm here to win games and build a winner. And that's, Matthew, that's how we operate. So, yeah, we wouldn't go for any of that. Let's put the uh, Captain Highlander Fisherman on the jersey. Not a chance. Lou Lamarillo, no way. Mm-hmm. And about the Leafs jersey, I like. I thought that they were going to go to some sort of Toronto Arena's jersey. That's what I was kind of hoping for. But they've done that in the past. Yes. Personally, yeah. my favorite with the Brown, about is that St. Pat's jersey. I love that jersey. Yeah, I actually had the I actually had the mm-hmm. privilege of sorry to interrupt. I had the privilege of going to that if game you bring... uh, against the team. I want to say it was the Chicago Blackhawks when they first used the uh, the St. Pat's jerseys, and it's amazing. It's beautiful looking at it like watching it on TV or seeing pictures of it. But like when you see it in person, it's something else. Yeah. That's with most, like the Leafs jersey, the one that they released. I don't like the gray because that that's not white. That if you're, that's not white. That's gray, and I I just feel like they, if they were it on yeah. white, it would yeah. look so much more, so much better. But also with all the with all these jerseys, you have like, with the white. You also have taken in, into account that like the people that they were that were modeling these these jerseys, they were not wearing the hockey equipment. They weren't like on the ice. Like it's. I, I feel like uh, like yeah. our opinion on all on all these jerseys are going to change once the season starts. Like once players get back on the ice, and you can see this, <laughs> like obviously not live in person, but just like li- like you could see this on TV as the game's going along. Yeah, I, I feel like we'll all get different opinions. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the podcast. If you guys do enjoy it, go drop us a follow on Instagram at Brule Talks Hockey, and be sure to go get Everyday Hockey Heroes Volume Two on Amazon indigo link will be in the show notes so you can go get one today